Good morning and welcome to another episode of Daily Feasting on the Words of Christ, helping members of the Church of Jesus Christ to engage with the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ on a more deeper and personal level. Today we are continuing with Nephi's writings of Isaiah, and I'm going to be honest that these chapters were difficult for me uh, today to read and kind of study and figure out what it is that I wanted to share on this episode. It, and so as I was thinking about it, I remember back before Nephi started quoting Isaiah, he mentions how he really likes the writings of this prophet because it helps him to see how merciful God is, but it also, he feels like it persuades men to believe in Jesus Christ. And so that's how I want to kind of go after these verses as we study the covenants the Lord has made with the house of Israel, is to think about what does it teach about the Savior and what does it teach about God's mercy? So, we're in pages 85 to 90. And, you know, it continues to talk about all the evil things that the house of Israel is doing. And the woes that will come upon them because of their wickedness, and how they're going to be destroyed because of that. So it doesn't seem like God's being very merciful in this moment. <laughs> but if we remember from yesterday, I kind of view this as God just letting them know what the consequences are for their actions and not necessarily punishing them. Um, and there's a couple of verses in here that are very well known, like, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Right? It's, it almost sounds like God is warning us. The house of Israel has chosen to make these choices, and these are the consequences that came because of the choices that they made, and God's telling us, be careful about calling evil good and good evil. Be careful about twisting the truth because you can't. You're going to break yourself against the truth. I think it was yesterday's podcast as well. We were talking about how the truth is the same. It'll never change. Change. You just have to make the choice whether or not you'll follow it or you'll go against it. And I think that's what the Lord is telling us, warning us by showing through the house of Israel what happens when we go against the truth. However, it does have a line at the end of verse 25 that kind of alludes to God's mercy. He says, for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. To me, that shows God's mercy because even though, you know, they're still going to receive consequences for the actions that they've done, 
God's hand is still stretched out to them if they repent and return to him. He is still willing to help them and to lend him his spirit and his protection. I don't know that it'll completely take away the consequences doing that, but, like, he wants us to come to him. So even in the midst of all of this, that's happening to the house of Israel. He's like, my hand is still out there for you. I still want to help you. I still want to be with you. Like his hand is stretched out still. And in these six pages, let's see. One. Two. Three, four, five. I don't know if it happens on other pages after this, but in these six pages, that phrase is said five times over three, four chapters. God wants us to understand that his hand is still out there for us. Even in the midst of despair and destruction, he still wants to help us. We just have to make the choice to reach our hand out to him through repentance and faith. And then in the next chapters, it talks a little bit about Isaiah being called as a prophet. And it mentions how when Jesus Christ will come, that they will reject his teachings and because of that they're going to be scattered and then a small part of them are going to return to the land of their inheritance and then it goes into a chapter where like kingdoms are fighting it has a lot of names in a lot of places and it can get a little bit confusing in chapter 17. Um, and so I kind of want to give a little bit of history and background about the timeline of the tribes of Israel. And hopefully it will help make the rest of these chapters make more, like a little bit more sense. So <clears throat> chapter heading of Chapter 17, it talks about Ephraim and Syria wage war against Judah. So who exactly are all these people? Okay, so I want to go back all the way to when the 12 tribes started, which is Jacob's sons. And they were moved to Egypt they were there for hundreds of years, enslaved. Moses freed them. They went into the wilderness for 40 years. And then they came to the promised land. Well, among the Hebrews, they keep a good record of their genealogy. So they know from which son or tribe of Israel that they've descended from. And even in the wilderness, they've kind of separated themselves into tribes. Like they're all still together, but like they're kind of grouped by descent, like whom they're descended from. And when they go into the promised land, they divide up the land 
into 12 different pieces and each tribe inherited a part of the land. Um, if you have like one of those quad Bibles that have pictures, oftentimes they have uh, some of those, like they have pictures of how the land was divided according to the 12 tribes of Israel with the names on them. And you'll recognize names like Ephraim and Judah and Benjamin and stuff like that. So anyway, the land is divided into 12 different ways. Well, at some point, I'm not exactly sure when, but the tribes split. Judah and Benjamin, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin come together as one and they're called Jews, and they live in Jerusalem. The other 10 tribes are known as, at that point, are known as the tribes of Israel, because there's, there's 10 of them. Um, and the reason why the tribe of Judah and Benjamin go by Jews is because Benjamin was such an itty-bitty tribe, and Judah was a much bigger tribe, so it just kind of whoop, swallowed up Benjamin. But anyway, um, so the tribes of Israel split and they kind of war against each other. So when it talks about Ephraim, if I remember correctly, Ephraim is the head or kind of those who come from the tribe of Ephraim are the king of the other tribes. And they've become like a nation, the other 10 tribes of Israel. And this chapter talks about how those 10 tribes of Israel with Ephraim being the head is starting to work with Syria, which is a major nation that worships idols and does not keep the covenants of the Lord. <clears throat> so I'm assuming that the ten tribes of Israel kind of have slightly fallen away from the Lord's covenants and his commandments. Because now they're conspiring with a nation that does not worship God. Um, and in this chapter, the Lord says that, let's see, I think it's verse seven, thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. So what he meant was Ephraim wanted to take over Judah and be king over everything. And he wanted serious help with that. And they wanted to establish a, some guy as king what not, I don't really know his name or know anything about him, but God says it's not going to work. So we don't need to know much about that. All we know is that the Lord is going to help Judah fight the battles against the other tribes that have fallen away and Syria. And the king of Judah actually receives a sign about Christ being born of a virgin at this time, which is interesting. And the rest of the chapter, to me, sounds like it talks about when that's going to come to pass. Um, Cause he says, bef so after he says that a virgin will conceive and bear a son and call him Emmanuel, it says what he will eat. He will refuse the evil and choose the good. And before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. 
meaning Ephraim and Syria will not like have kings or not even exist at this point. They'll be scattered and gone. And he just talks about how in that, in the day that Jesus will come, how like he's describing what that time will look like so that people will know when he's here. Kind of find it interesting that in a moment when Judah is about to have two nations come against them to war, that the Lord gives them a sign about a virgin birth. And that that boy will be Jesus Christ. And maybe it's a symbol of how the Lord will work miracles to save his people from both physical danger and spiritual danger. For Judah, he's protecting them against Ephraim and Syria, who are trying to overthrow them and destroy them. But then the Lord tells him about Jesus Christ, whom will save him from the devil and from sin and from death. And maybe that's another sign of God's mercy. Is all the the prophecies about Jesus Christ and how he will save his people from sin and death. That's probably another thing that gives Nephi hope and shows God's mercy to him. And knowing more about Jesus Christ and what he's going to do to save his people, that probably would persuade people to believe in a savior. In the next chapter, we learn that at some point Judah, if they reject their covenant, like if they don't keep their covenants and commandments, Assyria will overthrow them. But also during the time of Christ, he will become a stone of stumbling and a, for a rock of defense, not defense, offense to both the house of Israel for a gin and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. So what does it mean when it says that Christ shall be a stone of stumbling? Well, here's what I got so far. So Christ is known as the cornerstone. But as for a stone of stumbling, I don't hear much reference of. But another thought that comes to mind is why would people stumble because of Jesus Christ and his teachings? Well, when Jesus Christ came, a lot of the teachings were incongruent, even with the law of Moses. They were like, They'd made so many different laws and things. It was so confusing. There was like 600 things they had to remember to do on the set. But there's it was a crazy number. Maybe it wasn't 600. But it was a lot of rules to the point where you're like, you can't even get out of bed in the morning. B12. 
because you're probably going to break a rule. There's just so many things to do. And Christ comes and he's like, just get rid of all those laws. And because they're all fulfilled in me, like the law of Moses is fulfilled. So you don't have to do that. And here's the new law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and serve each other. And so all these people who are following all these itty bitty rules, they stumble and they fall on the teaching, like, and they fall because of the teachings of Christ, because they, they try to follow the old law and they're not going to get anywhere. And so I think that's what it means that Christ will be a stone of stumbling is because they're trying to follow an old law that's been fulfilled. They're trying to follow all these itty bitty rules that weren't, don't even matter. And Christ comes and he starts to build something new and they're going to stumble on it because they're not part of the program. And they're going to stumble and fall and be caught in snares. And I just think of like the devil catching them because they're not helping to, they're not following the new teachings of Jesus Christ. And so when they stumble and they fall on their old habits and their old rules, they're going to get caught in the devil's, I was about to say devil's snare, but that's okay. And it also talks about how there's peeping wizards. I'm not sure what that means, but like familiar spirits and things like that. And how these people go to other weird, like fortune teller type, I'm going to speak to the dead type people for guidance to do in their lives. And the Lord's like, guys, I sent you Jesus Christ. Go to the law, the scriptures. Go to the testimony of the prophets. Follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. That will give you guidance. Not these wizards who claim to speak with the dead. So, so far, what we're learning is we're learning the consequences for choosing evil over good. But no matter what we choose, the Lord's hand is still stretched out to us. We've learned that... Christ is going to be born of a virgin and how his teachings are going to be a stumbling block for a lot of people because they're not going to believe in him and they're not going to follow his teachings. They're going to reject him and how that's going to cause them to fall into sin. And then the next chapter, there's a verse that I absolutely love and have a really hard time not singing when I read it. Verse 6, where it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And it, in this chapter, he talks about how Christ is going to be a great light but they're going to reject that light. And how Israel's going to 
be devoured because they reject Jesus Christ. And then he says, for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And he goes on and talks about how he will not have mercy on the fatherless or the widows because they're hypocrites and evil, evil doers. But he says, for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And then he talks about how the land is going to be covered in briars and thickets and how there's going to be no food for them to eat and how they're going to war against each other. But for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And then it talks about how Syria, not Syria, Assyria is going to come and conquer Israel because of their evil doings and their wickedness and their hypocriticalness. But for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. I think that's where Nephi gets his mercy is all these things that happen to the people. They're being conquered. They're going to, there's going to be no mercy for the widows and the fatherless because they too have chosen evil. They're going to go hungry. They're going to have wars. There's going to be difficult times, but God's hand is stretched out still. If only they would take it. If only they would follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. He has given them a light and they reject it. And I think that's where Nephi gets his hope. And maybe even how he persuades people to believe in Christ is like, this is what happens when you don't follow Jesus Christ. I'm not entirely sure. It'd be awesome if I could talk to Nephi about it and get his perspective. But I'll have to wait probably until after this life to talk with him about Isaiah. And at the same time, I could probably talk to Isaiah then too. Get both of their perspectives, the author and the person who loved the author, his writings so much that he quoted them in the Book of Mormon, took the time to write them in this book, and he felt inspired to write them in the Book of Mormon. There was a footnote when he started quoting Isaiah back in the last episode. Um... Uh, yeah, here we go. It says, Comparison with the King James Bible in English shows that there are differences in more than half of the 433 verses of Isaiah quoted in the Book of Mormon, while about 200 verses have the same wording as the King James Version. So, we... There are so... More than half of the verses quoted in here are different than what's in the Bible. This gives us additional knowledge on Jesus Christ and the Lord's mercy. Nephi felt inspired to write these in the Book of Mormon to help us understand more about our Savior Jesus Christ, how he's going to be a light, how he's going to save us from death and sin, also about the covenants the Lord has made with the house of Israel, how he'll fight the battles of those who keep the covenants, that we don't need to worry about any Ephraim or Syria that comes against us as long as we keep the commandments. But also, it helps us to understand what happens when we don't keep the commandments. But also, that the Lord is still willing to help us, as long as we turn back to Him. 
we're, we're going to, he tells us the consequences and in the midst of the consequences, he's like, here's my hand. I can help you if you just reach out. And in the midst of all this, we learn of God's mercy, his kindness. We learn about Jesus Christ. And we gain additional and new information. The Lord really wants us to understand Isaiah. I think a lot of it has to do with the last days as well. Like especially when we go into tomorrow, we're going to learn about a little bit of the second coming because the chapter heading says that the destruction of Assyria is a type of destruction of wicked at the second coming. We didn't get into it today because we stopped on verse 10, but I think tomorrow we'll get more into what that will look like. And so Isaiah helps us to understand what the last days will look like as well and how we can have trust and confidence in the Lord because as long as we choose what's right, we know we're going to be saved. We know that the Lord's going to be protecting us and helping us as long as we keep the commandments and keep our covenants. And so I, I truly think I can testify that God is merciful, that even in the midst of these trials and these consequences we bring upon ourselves because of sin, that his hand is still stretched out to us. That, you know, he doesn't look at us and say, oh, you sinned, I don't want to help you anymore. Like, I'm going to leave you to your own devices because you rejected me. No, he's like, I see that you've fallen and I know that it's because you rejected me. But I'm still here for you. Are you willing to accept me now? And he's, and if we say no again and fall again and sin again, he's like, just turn to me. He doesn't say, you idiot. He says, come, repent, have faith in me. He loves us. He doesn't want to see us in pain and in anguish due to our sins because he's felt that. Jesus Christ has felt that pain and that anguish and he knows that he has power to help comfort us in the midst of that pain and that anguish and he wants us to have joy and he knows that it can come if we repent and have faith in him I can testify of God's mercy because I have made like I've sinned I'm imperfect I've made so many mistakes I'm prideful and selfish and I don't always listen to God and I make my own choices and I receive those consequences and God's like if you just come back I can help you and when I've come back I have received help. I have received forgiveness. And I've received light. I can testify of God's mercy because he's been merciful to me. Every new day is a sign of God's mercy because he's giving me another opportunity, another chance to repent, to make better choices, to be a better person today than what I was tomorrow. I can truly testify that, right? Because 
and I know I've said that a lot. I feel like I keep repeating myself, but it's that I do it because it's important. I feel like it's important, if that makes sense. I feel like it's important for us to understand that because oftentimes when we sin, we feel shame and we don't extend mercy to ourselves. And we think that God cannot be merciful to us, but it's not true. God can be merciful to us. He has all the power. Therefore, he is able to be merciful to us. And we don't need to hold on to shame. We can repent and do better the next day. I hope that this podcast episode was beneficial for you and helpful. Uh, If you think that someone else would benefit from listening to it, please share this with a friend or family member or even someone you don't know today. Um, and if you have any insights that you would like to share, go to the Facebook page, Daily Feasting on the Words of Christ, and just, you know, share with me and what you have been learning from the Book of Mormon and learning from these episodes. I'd love to hear from you and all the insights that you've been able to gather. And I hope that you'll have a great day. Love you. God loves you. Bye. (laughs) Bye.